0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyricus Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 44th episode of The Hale Report is author and futurist Mark Roeder. Mark spoke to us a while back from Sydney about his new book, What We Do Next Really Matters. Soon, we will be releasing a new report by Hale Strategic, co-authored by Mark Robert Matson and myself on artificial intelligence. In advance of its release, we thought you'd enjoy getting to know my friend and colleague, Mark Roeder. So good morning, Mark, and welcome to the Hale Report.
1: Good morning, Larry.
0: Very nice to see you virtually. It's been a while.
1: It sure has.
0: Let me tell you a bit about our guest. I've known Mark for more than 20 years. I met him when he was working for Zurich Insurance where my husband, David, was chief economist. As head of marketing, Mark arranged David's multi-state roadshows in Australia. Those were very happy times, and Mark is responsible for introducing me to Australia, for which I will always be grateful. Mark then moved to the city of Zurich and to London, where he became global head of advertising and communications planning for UBS. There he directed what I believe was one of the biggest marketing budgets for a financial services firm worldwide. He moved back to Sydney to be closer to family and wrote two books, The Big Mo* and Unnatural Selection. I should also add that he is a consultant and colleague to Hale Strategic here in Chicago, where my day job is director of research. Mark has just released a very timely new book, and I have to say I really love the title, What We Do Next Really Matters. Economists are accustomed to looking backwards at data to make their forecasts. Mark's approach is forward-looking. What are the powerful undercurrents that are shaping our world, which is what we are all wondering? Mark, the premise of your book is that the pandemic, in combination with geopolitical turmoil and climate change, have all given us a wake-up call. But will we answer the call? You begin your book with a story of a place I visited last fall, Hope Cemetery in Vermont. Can you tell us about the significance of that place?
1: Sure. The importance of that place is that it's one of the only spots in the world where there's a memorial to the Spanish flu of of 1918. Uh, And this memorial wasn't created by a government or, you know, the U.S. government or some global organization, such as the World, World Health Organization. It was erected by a local restaurateur, Who'd lost relatives in the in the pandemic? So the amazing thing is that you have this global catastrophe, the Spanish flu, that killed between fifteen and hundred million people, and yet there are no memorials or cenotaphs or commemorations for it. Yet for World War One, which killed far less people, there are memorials everywhere, all over the planet. So a conclusion we can draw from this is that we tend to not want to remember pandemics. It's as if we prefer to erase them from our collective consciousness.
0: The other thing that I found very interesting in your book is you talk about reversion to the norm, that um, the the natural tendency of people, in fact, is not to memorial, memorialize that kind of, a, of an event, but to try to do as much as possible to forget it and to go back to their daily lives. We've talked about that with our colleague Robert Madsen as well. And he believes, I I think he agrees with you on that. Why is this time different, though? Do you think this time there will be a lasting effect from the pandemic?
1: Yes, I, I do for a number of reasons. The main one is that unlike previous pandemics where the death and suffering and pain was inflicted largely behind closed doors and hidden away from public view, This COVID-19 pandemic has has been forensically documented by a gazillion social media posts and Twitter feeds and almost from day one, it's had saturation media coverage. And that collective memory burn, you might say, is not going to be erased. It's been seared into the collective psyche. And and yes, it's subsided a lot, but it hasn't completely gone away. You know, every now and then we see a new mutation popping up. And so the shadow of the pandemic is, is still with us.
0: Right. Uh, And how humans adapt to that, of course, is the issue. And in one of your chapters, uh, there's a fascinating discussion of neuroplasticity. And the way you describe it is, I admit, not the way that I had thought of it. You're looking at the human brain and how we adapt to these kind of situations, kind of a hardware-software approach. I think people would be quite interested um, in, in that and really maybe thinking that our brains aren't as malleable as we thought and teachable as we thought, that we're going to also revert to the norm.
1: That's right. One of the most successful books about 10 or 15 years ago, a series of books really, was The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge, which introduced the concept of neuroplasticity, which really means our brain's always evolving and growing and creating new neurons and connections. It's it's a really optimistic notion, and and it is largely true, especially for younger people. But but the reality is that as we get older, we're not so shall we say neuroplastic, and we do you know get quite set in our ways. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that as a species, notwithstanding our incredible adaptability, once we come to a worldview, once we decide how we see things. We're very reluctant to change that world view and we become so attached to this way of seeing that it becomes part of our identity, which is why people feel so threatened whenever it's challenged. And it probably goes a long way towards explaining why identity politics is such a powerful force in the world today. So the downside of this stuckness is that we become very reluctant to envision a new type of existence for ourselves. And we'd rather revert to the old ways of doing things, a certain nostalgia sets in. so during the pandemic, while well, you know a lot of people embrace the opportunity to make big changes in their lives. you know, they work from home or reevaluated their priorities. a lot more people I think, yearn to return to their old lives and put the whole thing behind them as as quickly as possible. They, they don't really want to recognize that well. The, the reality is that before the pandemic, the, the world was not in a particularly good place. You know, We were suffering from environmental degradation, a lot of political polarization, rising authoritarianism, and, and a huge increase in economic inequality. So we, we're now we're locked in a battle between, on the one hand, a reversion to the old norms, and on the other hand, seizing the opportunity of what happened during the pandemic, uh, You know, as tragic as it was, to make some big changes.
0: I think that the ravages of the pandemic, you know, make that, um, it makes it difficult for people to look forward to the future with optimism. And you write about, Mark, um, mental illness. And many people have, have felt that the pandemic created an increase in the rapidly serious uh, mental health crisis that we have, especially in the United States right now. Can you talk about how you're Looking at that, you know, and at the same time, this morning, I read an article saying that we've been treating depression, for example, all wrong. The new research shows that what we thought the cause of of depression was low uh, serotonin levels, in fact, is not true. And that um, uh, so that in other words, all the medications that have been prescribed are not effective. So what this brought to mind to me was how do you pull together what was pre-pandemic that was making people feel unhappy? Then the pandemic itself, and that was pretty obvious what was making people unhappy, and also was is the cause that something else completely extraneous that we have been prescribing drugs for people that don't really help? How do you untangle this this thread?
1: This is obviously a, a really challenging area. Um, there's an emerging view that a lot of mental illness is caused by cognitive rigidity, whereby we become trapped in, in certain negative thought patterns or loops that cause us to keep feeling and thinking the same things over and over again. And these patterns eventually become etched into the wiring of our, our brain. I mean, because as as the neurologist might say, neurons that fire together wire together. So if this is true, then just boosting serotonin levels with an antidepressant is unlikely to break these deeply entrenched thought patterns. Even though they obviously help many millions of people, we just don't know how they operate, especially now that the serotonin hypothesis has been debunked, as, as you say. But fascinatingly, we do know that psychedelics such as psilocybin which is the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms, do have the power to break these negative thought loops. They they sort of shake up the kaleidoscope of our, our mental world and form new patterns, which then allow us to reconsider some long-held, often really negative assumptions about that we might hold about ourselves. So the theory behind this effect is that the drug temporarily shuts down what's known as the... Default mode network in the brain, which is the part that underpins our our sense of self and world view, and so when people use these psychedelics in a therapeutic setting, they've been able to um, they've been able to overcome all sorts of serious mental illnesses, from depression to anxiety to PTSD. the The other big difference between psychedelics and traditional drugs such as antidepressants is that they don't just mask the symptoms they appear to directly fix the faulty brain circuitry. And you have to take them just a few times, unlike an antidepressant, which often has to be taken you know, for years or sometimes for, the, for your entire life. I actually interviewed one of the pioneers of the psychedelic renaissance, a remarkable man named Rick Doblin, who is um, currently pushing for MDMA, which is the pure form of ecstasy. To be legalized as a treatment for PTSD the trials of this drug have been so encouraging you know we're talking about a 70 percent success rate for PTSD that is you know seven seventy percent of people in full remission that um, it looks like the FDA will probably approve it next year which would be just fantastic news there's another aspect to psychedelics I think which is just as important as the medical one even though it's. It's more controversial. And that is that these drugs can can also help even healthy people to see things in a new light by reducing the, the cognitive rigidity and our, our sort of egocentric mindset. They allow us to look at ourselves, our life, our relationships to others. In fact, the whole universe, you might say, in, in a very different way. They can also have a big impact on creativity. I think I recall Apple Steve Jobs uh, said that at one point, taking LSD was one of the most important experiences in his life. And we probably wouldn't even have Apple today without those early experiences, I would say. And, and many of the most influential people in Silicon Valley and the creative industries have attributed at least part of their success to their formative psychedelic experiences.
0: Well, the pandemic, you know, the, um, the concern that many people have is with children. And the stresses that they suffered, and there's certainly reports that children are, um, since the pandemic began and lockdowns and so forth, that they've been um, suffering um, terribly from the effects of this. So it, it's, it's a long-term issue because what happens to them, this interrupted life that they've had in terms of recovery from the pandemic and the future and where
1: we're going. That's so true, Lyric. My own son completed his high school education during the pandemic. And in fact, most of his final year classes were held online on Zoom. Uh, he's at uni now, but uh, there's no doubt that he and his generation have experienced a, a form of collective trauma.
0: That's all of us <laughs> today, right?
1: <laughs> That's all of us, exactly. Uh, I think it's important we recognize why the pandemic has been, has been so traumatic. It's, because it's not just about the sickness and death and disruption, it's also about the the nature of the threat. Because you can't actually see a virus, it, it operates invisibly by stealth, so you can't really focus on the enemy because it's everywhere and and sort of amorphous. There's no specific target where you can concentrate your energy, nowhere to channel the anger and frustration. And, and that's a recipe, a classic recipe for post-traumatic stress, because the Suppressed energy becomes toxic to the psych. And I, I think this undercurrent of, of collective frustration about the pandemic is, was, has been so strong that I've come to the view that it's one of the reasons the world, at least in the West, rallied so effectively in support of Ukraine after Russia invaded it. Because this war provided a, a focal point to fight back at something visible and tangible to take action, any action, really. Because it, it, it can't be a, a coincidence that up until this point, the West, including NATO, had not really pushed back at Russia. I remember I was living in London when Russian expats were being poisoned with radioactive material and, and Georgia was invaded by Russia and there was barely a response from the global community. The attitude was like, oh, yeah, well, that's Russia. You know, there's nothing we can really do about it. But, but when they attacked Ukraine in, in 2022, it was a, a very different story. We, we did push back. So I've come to believe that if we didn't have a pandemic over the past few years, I doubt whether we would have seen such a powerful galvanizing response by Western nations and NATO countries towards Russia's incursion into it.
0: And, and in fact, in 2014, we did not, right? Right.
1: That's right. Well, that's exactly right. Russia just rolled into Crimea.
0: So what's the difference?
1: The difference is that the pandemic changes people. It changes us at a collective level and allows us and and our governments to act in different ways, not just in terms of our our response to Ukraine, but also more generally, you know, our relationships, our priorities, our work habits. I mean, it's extraordinary the number of people who've left their high-paying jobs during the pandemic, I think. Because they probably realized during the enforced isolation, you know, which sort of operated like a giant meditation retreat, that they didn't want to spend the next 40 years chasing more dollars and commuting two to three hours a day just so they can get a promotion and live in a, in a, in a bigger house. They, they'd rather have a better life balance. And I can understand that, where they're coming from. Because you know I, I worked in corporate life for a long time. I'll suspect, suspect this is not a short-term thing either. When you consider how many C- CBD office buildings are almost empty today, I, I just can't see them ever, ever being filled up again, especially now we've gotten used to using Zoom and working part-time from home. Plus, you've got all these new technologies, such as virtual reality, which will only accelerate the remote working. I, I really do believe we've entered into a, in, into a new era.
0: Well, you know, you say that... Um because of all of this, and maybe we were headed that way anyway before the pandemic, but that we've really reached an inflection point. And it's it's hard to tell when you're on an inflection point that you have arrived there, right? You can only tell it, really understand that afterwards. And I read, I understand that, you know, you have ancestors who fought in the Civil War and you visited Gettysburg. Do you believe that This could turn, especially in the United States, something like that could happen again, that um, there could be a very negative side of this. You've just been talking about something that's more positive and life-affirming, but what are the negative externalities that we could see?
1: Yes, I I do worry about the possibility of a, a new civil war in America, but perhaps not a military one, but a cultural one, which a lot of people would argue is already underway, I guess. It certainly feels like the U.S. is more divided than at any time since the Civil War. I visited Gettysburg with my nephew, Nick, some years ago and visited a place called Devil's Den where my where my great-great-grandfather fought and was wounded. And I remember the guide told us that the battle was so so violent on those three days that the blood was up to the, the soldiers' ankles. So the American Civil War was one of the bloodiest wars in history. And I, I recall thinking that, Um, how lucky we were that those days had long passed us. But I'm not so sure now. It's amazing how quickly things can turn. You know, civilization can be so fragile. Anyway, look, after that visit to Gettysburg, I I became obsessed for a while with Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and, and was amazed how short it was, just 272 words and barely two minutes long. And it was so powerful. And I think this is because it conjured up a vision for America that transcended its opposite and warring factions. And, and that's what's missing today, I think. There, there's no point of unity or, or consensus. People people are either on the left or the right. They're glued to watching Fox News on, or, or CNN and, and looking for information that reinforces their existing worldview. And the media companies, of course, just keep feeding them what they want to hear.
0: Leadership is missing, yeah.
1: But that's exactly right. The business model that drives the American media today is the sports casting model, really. By that I mean the media companies take sides on the political spectrum and, you know, really aggressively barrack for their team. Fox News kicked off the process, I believe, um, when they effectively you know, merged with the Republican Party. But it wasn't, you know, long before the middle-of-the-road channels like CNN chose sides too and, and became more extreme in their support of, of the left and the Democrats. And then you get this vicious cycle now. The more vigorous the competition, the more ruthless the game, the greater the engagement with the audience, you know, and the greater the engagement ultimately generates more advertising dollars. Look, it's a really lucrative and clever media model, this polarisation approach. But unfortunately, when you add the Impact of social media, which is like pouring petrol onto people's simmering, simmering grievances. Each side absolutely convinced they're the righteous ones. You end up with a cultural war that tears away at the fabric of society, which is what we're seeing today. Look, it's such a shame because for much of the rest of the world, and I think you in Australia too, for a long time, America was viewed as this sort of Camelot on the hill, you know, a shining exemplar of what. A democracy is supposed to be all about, but it's it's harder to see it that way now, you know, especially after the January six riots.
0: I think they just mirror the leadership, um, and we have a leadership crisis all over the world. Boris Johnson, for example, um, you've you've had a, a change of leadership, but in the United States, um, Joe Biden is the least popular president I think since those surveys have. Have begun. There are a a huge number of of people um, who believe that the election was not fair, or um, that it was not it was inaccurate. And I think that um, what that they're really saying is that we don't accept a that there's that he is a transcendent leader. We don't. When they're saying that, what they're saying is he's not our president, basically, and that is exactly what has happened, this huge divide. The media is similar. There's no, as you say, there's no business model that allows um, that neutral ground to continue. What you say in your book as well is that um, our elites have failed us. What do you mean by that? Is that by not partially that they're not transcending? And what else, how else have the elites failed? Academics and... We've talked about media and political leaders, but there are many more elites than that.
1: Absolutely. There's a real problem with our elites uh, not willing to speak up anymore on controversial issues. They become so corporatized and anodyne that they dare not challenge the status quo. So, so if you're, say, an intelligent, well-educated, well-connected person, you know, the sort of person who might attend their World Economic Forum and is dependent on, on high-paying consultancy gigs... For big corporations, you're very, very unlikely to say anything that's radical or outside the norm. You're not going to shake the tree or disturb the system that that pays you. Mind you, these characters, you know, they're happy to pontificate on all sorts of issues like climate change, you know, uniform global tax rates or whatever. And they're often in violent agreement with each other. But God forbid anyone who steps out of line and proposes something radical or shocking because they'll soon find themselves alienated. Their peers will say, well, you know, he or she is not really part of the club anymore. Yet in previous times in history, it was the best and brightest, you know, the elites of their day who were the drivers of great social change, whereas today our elites, with very few exceptions, are simply waving the the traffic in the direction it's going. Such a shame, really. There are some areas where it's, it's just impossible to speak out because it's so tightly controlled by orthodoxy. We we saw this during the pandemic, when it became almost impossible for any scientist or researcher or doctor to challenge the government's official stance on vaccines or mandates. Look, I I can understand the reasoning behind this because obviously it was it was critical that to get as many people vaccinated as possible, uh, and there was a lot of you know, misinformation floating around by the anti-vaxxers. But, but the point is, many of these scientists, they were not radicals. They were extremely well-credentialed professionals, often you know, leaders in fields like immunology and vaccines, and, and they had legitimate concerns about vaccine side effects and, and the long-term health impacts. Yet they were cancelled by the media and social media, and, and some were even blacklisted. They weren't allowed to say anything negative about the vaccines or even at any potential problems. For goodness sake, they, they couldn't even discuss the origin of the virus, whether it was a, the result of a zoonotic transmission from animals or a lab leak in Wuhan. It was, it was a very Orwellian time. Uh, and I, th- I think we see this stifling of opinion in so many areas of our, of our life today. Uh, there's another example. I, I just want to discuss Lyric if you don't mind, which, is, which I wrote about in my book, which is the whole area of, of UFOs or UAPs, as they're called today, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. In, in, 19, sorry, in 2017, the New York Times broke an amazing story that the US military had been tracking UFOs for years, and they'd accumulated strong evidence for for their existence. Now, this is obviously a, a really big thing, because the possibility that we humans may not be alone in the universe has profound consequences to say the least yet the stigma over ufos is so powerful that people especially pilots are still very reluctant to report any any sightings for fear they're going to be dismissed as as being nutters you know or, or, or blacklisted i i suppose look fortunately some people like christopher mellon who's the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for intelligence and and some other high ranking officials are, are pushing for new legislation that that should make it easier for people to come forward and and discuss their ufo experiences and i think some uh, congressional inquiries are taking place as well or plan to take place, place. but this push this huge push for uh, transparency on on the ufo subject is is facing a, an uphill battle people just don't want to rock the boat and, that, and that's, I think, one of the great paradoxes of the so-called information age we're living in, which is despite us having access to all this data, it's very difficult to challenge orthodox thinking. Whether you're a scientist, an astronomer, or a corporate executive, society pushes us to, to conform to the norm.
0: Right. That's why, and, the, and universities should be a place that that can happen, and yet they're one of the primary places where cancellation happens today, unfortunately.
1: Absolutely. The cancel culture in, in many universities is, is notorious. It's, it's not just that you can't take a controversial position on a particular subject, but in many cases, you aren't even allowed to discuss the subject at all. The, the woke crowd has deemed the subject to be off limit, and that's that. It's totally outrageous, really.
0: Outrageous. Well, this the role of the elites um, relates to the role of inequality. But before we get there, I'd like to visit Australia a little bit and ask you about how things are going on in Australia. I, as I understand it, your lockdown was more severe than than China's. What is the the feeling right now um, about how the pandemic was handled there, and what implications does it have for Australia's future?
1: I think that overall Australia handled the pandemic pretty well, at least in terms of outright numbers. Our mortality rate for COVID has been around 730 per million people, which is about a a quarter of the rate in the US or the UK and and parts of Europe. It's also helped that we're in Ireland, of course, and we we did lock down very hard, especially in Melbourne. And like most countries, we, we had some big debates about whether to let the virus rip or close everything down, but we. We certainly didn't experience the intense polarisation you saw in the US. I, I think there's a sense in Australia, and I'm not speaking for everyone, of course, that that we've got to, we had to get through this thing together, which means we, we had to make sacrifices for the common good. I mean, sure, we've, we've had our problems, I'm not trying to diminish those, but generally, I think it's fair to say there's a greater sense of social cohesion in Australia than a lot of other countries. And there's a a desire to seek the common ground. I suspect this is probably a lot to do with the fact that we've got compulsory voting.
0: Which people don't know, yeah.
1: We're one of the very few countries in the world that actually has compulsory voting. So so what that means is because everyone has to vote, you don't just get the most motivated people voting, such as those on the extreme right or left. Everyone has to vote. And because most people want to want some moderation in the way they're governed, you tend to end up with policies that reflect more mainstream views, not not just the extremist views. Uh, and over time, this leads to a a more stable social society. I think. Um, look, I'm a great believer in compulsory voting. I, I know a lot of people in America would say, "How dare the government you know force us to vote? That it's an infringement of their rights and so on." But my but my goodness, the government already forces us to wear seatbelts, pay taxes you know, comply with the road rules. So so surely it's a small price to pay for living in a democracy to ask people to vote every few years. It's, it's not a great impost.
0: I, I completely agree with you. And one thing I just don't really understand is why if we can pay taxes using our phone, why can't we vote using our phone? Why can't it be a lot more easier for people to do that?
1: But Yeah, it... it would certainly make the process a lot easier and encourage more people to vote, I think. But there are still some pragmatic reasons why we shouldn't do online voting just yet. The the main one is that notwithstanding the advances made in encryption, especially end-to-end encryption, it's it's far easier to hack into an electronic voting system than a paper ballot one. Uh, And if there is a dispute, like we saw in America after the last election with the Dominion voting machines. You can always go back to the paper ballots to cross-check them, but but you can't do that with a, a totally online system. Uh, and when you consider how precarious the current situation is, you know, in terms of voting, it, it's important, I think, to not inject any more potential doubts into the election process. There's also something primal, almost, about physically marking your ballot on a on a piece of paper that makes. The democratic process feel more tangible and real, but but I do agree that eventually we will move to voting online, but only after we overcome the technological and trust issues.
0: I still think maybe through blockchain there's some kind of technological solution, but um, we'll see. I think coming up to this election, we're going to be there. There's going to be a lot of discussion of this in in November.
1: Agreed, Lyric. A, a blockchain-based system could be the solution, because it, it would be virtually unhackable, and it would go a long way towards building the trust needed for, for an online system. I, I suppose the complicating factor is that now is the emergence of um, really advanced artificial intelligence, which may be able to circumvent even a blockchain. Don't know yet, it's early days. Look, but in theory, I think you're right. Blockchains could be the ultimate answer.
0: Well, another one of the concepts that you explore in your book is this idea of GDP. How is it measured? Is, is GDP growth what we should be hoping for? Especially, we've probably reached a, a population peak or about to in many countries. Um, I know China's population this year will probably diminish from now on certainly Japan's, will. United States is, is um, staying pretty steady, and I assume Australia too, but that's because of immigration. So how does this growth, economic growth, uh, fit into your view of, the, of this new world that we're going to be inhabiting?
1: Look, I, I think that we as a civilization have become a bit obsessed by GDP and this relentless pursuit of economic growth. No matter no matter what the cost to our environment and societies. We have sort of elevated the concept of GDP to a, a kind of a demigod that we're all supposed to serve and worship. And our politicians are terrified of doing anything that could jeopardize the GDP figure. It, it wasn't always like this, of course, because decades ago the GDP figure was something you'd only find at the back of the financial section of a newspaper or an economic journal, but now it's often the you know front-page news. And I think this is because we, we now see GDP not just as a purely an economic measure, but as a sort of de facto barometer of the well-being of our society, which is ridiculous, of course, because you can have a, a high GDP, while at the same time you can have huge inequality, environmental devastation, you know, crumbling infrastructure, social decay, uh, corrosive corruption, you name it. It, it. it also perverts the value of things. Because according to the GDP model, just for example, a tree—say a tree in the Amazon—it's worth more dead than alive. And consider this: the environmental value of the forest in the Amazon is not counted in the national accounts, whereas the cost of cleaning up any environmental pollution is actually included in Brazil's GDP figures. So, so GDP gives us, us a really distorted view of what's valuable and what is not. There's the late um, great economist Herman Daly, who was I was a great fan of, he used to say that GDP does not distinguish between good and bad economic activity. And I think that's true. It, it just plonks all of it in the same bucket. In fact, Daly worked in Brazil for a while when he was at the World Bank. And, and he saw firsthand how dangerous this uh, GDP obsession was in terms of devastating the the landscape. He was probably one of the the first economists to really talk about sustainable growth and not just growth at all costs. It's also become clear now that that after we reach a a certain stage of economic development, there's a a diminishing law of returns if we keep trying to grow just for the sake of it. That is, if you push GDP beyond a certain point, you start to have a, a, a negative effect on society because people have to work longer hours, there's more stress, more environmental degradation, and things start to go backwards. And this is because the the relentless pressure just starts to overwhelm people's capacity to cope, and you you get social decay, you get more alcoholism, marriage breakups, increases in crime, and all sorts of problems. So the idea that you can keep pushing up GDP forever, it's a complete fantasy. You know, we end up paying a, a terrible price for it.
0: Well, another aspect of that is ESG, which is really at a crossroads now because of energy costs rising. Um, it's going to be difficult, I think, to balance the concerns that corporations have for growth versus environmental, so societal, and governance concerns.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. The ESG movement is a, a critically important one, really, but, but it was always going to be eclipsed by the pressures of the marketplace and shareholder demands. But, but in the long term, I, I don't see how companies can avoid considering their impact on the environment and society and, and, and yeah, also governance in general. I noticed that the cloud, cloud Squab over the World Economic Forum is pushing companies to pay more attention to this area. I, I thought his book on, on stakeholder capitalism was, was really good. And that he makes it clear that companies just can't get away with only focusing on, on shareholder value anymore. They've got to consider the, the wider environment in which they operate.
0: So, Mark, in terms of how where the world is going, you say you see two scenarios, um, obviously one negative, one more positive. Can you describe um, those two scenarios?
1: Well, we're certainly at a crossroads. Uh, we've arrived at one of those moments in history that are, uh, sometimes referred to as hinge points where the decisions we make or, or don't make over the next few years will reverberate for decades. So we've really got to pay a lot of attention to the choices we make now because the consequences won't just be profound, they'll, they'll be long-lasting. We also unfortunately don't have the, the buffer zones we had previously that protected us from our, our human follies. Our, our natural environment is, is less resilient because we've destroyed so much of it, and it doesn't have the capacity to bounce back as it once did. I mean, you know, you look at the Amazon today, which is part of the Earth's lungs. It's it's nearly twenty percent smaller than it was a century ago due to deforestation, and about thirty eight percent of the remaining forest has been degraded in the past twenty years. And, and just generally, our world is more fragile. You know, our political processes are polarized. Our institutions are fraying at the edges. Of the legal system universities, the media, all all under pressure. And in the background, we've got this looming threat of a a new Cold War with China. I should also add there's the growing problem of surveillance, which has become so pervasive that it permeates every aspect of our lives, not just government surveillance, but corporate surveillance too. The the danger here is that it nudges people to self-censor in order to avoid scrutiny by the authorities. This is This is exactly what happened in East Germany during the Stasi regime. And surely the the freedom to think or or cognitive liberty is the most sacred of all our freedoms. I don't want to sound too negative about all this, but if we don't get things right in the coming years, we we could slide back into a a sort of a dark ages of the kind that dominated Europe in the Middle Ages. But ours would be a a high-tech version of it driven by oppressive technologies. But on the other hand, if by some miracle we do manage to make the right choices, we could steer our civilization in a much more positive direction. You know, we certainly have the tools to do this. There's green energy, remarkable medical advances, amazing technologies. And also there's generally a more heightened awareness of the importance of sustainability and human rights. It, it, it's really about harnessing, harnessing these attributes uh, and, begin, and to begin the process of creating a, a, a new social contract, you know, one that is more suitable to, to the early 21st century. That's really what my book is about, I guess, a call for a new social contract.
0: Well, Mark, something I usually ask my guests right at the beginning of the podcast instead of at the end is what motivated them? And I think you partially answered this just now. What motivated you to do the things you're doing, to become an author, and to try to raise these transcendent issues?
1: Well, the main motivation for me has always been a curiosity about why things are the way they are. And during the pandemic, my, my curiosity went into overdrive because like everyone else, I was suddenly confronted with an entirely new environment and was forced to reevaluate many of my assumptions about life. I also became acutely aware during this, this weird Period about how interconnected everything was because that's ultimately what the pandemic showed us. I think it brought our entire system into focus. But but generally, we humans are not good at understanding systemic threats. We tend to focus on specific ones, like a, you know an economic crisis or a public health emergency or a war. We don't we don't see how these things can be interrelated. We don't we don't join the dots to see the whole picture. I remember some years ago in London, I had a chat with. Fareed Zakaria, the the great American political commentator, and we were discussing the challenges of the modern media. And and he suggested that the big challenge for media companies is to create a context through which people can understand the issues of the day, but that this was very hard to do now because of the incessant 24-hour news cycle and social media, which literally gushes out a constant torrent of attention-grabbing headlines and snippets so people just skim the surface of all this titillating information without ever really delving into it too deeply or questioning the underlying context. So, so people end up in their self-reinforcing belief bubbles. I, I've tried to burst some of these bubbles in my book by inviting readers to take a step back and to join the dots to see the bigger picture because it's, it's the only way we can comprehend what's really going on and perhaps in doing so, challenge our own belief systems.
0: And you have a special dedication in the book as well that I thought might have something to do with that.
1: Oh, yes. I I dedicated the book to a fabulous man called Max Fulcher who passed away last year. He he was a mentor to me and to many other people. Not sure how to describe him because he was so many things, an artist, an ad man, a philosopher. And and just one of those people who left an indelible imprint on, on everyone he met. He was a a one-of-a-kind, really, a, a true Renaissance man. So we will miss him, but I, I'm sure he's up there looking down on us, we, we hope.
0: Well, there are not too many of them left, are there? But for our listeners, you've been listening to Mark Roeder, who's written a fantastic new book called What We Do Next Really Matters. And if you want to knit together all of these things that we're trying to, as Mark just explained, Um, uh, the pandemic and the societal issues, the economic issues, global public health, all of those things, the media in particular, too, um, in terms of how we gather information and understand what we believe in. I think this book will be a treat for you, and I highly recommend it. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to see you in person soon, either in the U.S. or in Chicago. And also thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, Managing Editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Larry. It's been an absolute honor and a pleasure.